Thank you so very much. Let's take our Bibles and join me, would you please, in the book of John, the Gospel of John. We're in chapter 14. We're talking about the love of God this morning and what happened there in light of what happened at right prior to Calvary. As you're turning to John 14, I want to go back into a little bit of our church history years ago when we were doing a Bible school. Pastor Binkley was the one who was doing the preaching at this time. There was a group of kids that were here in the auditorium, and he was teaching them about the, from the book of Judges about victories that believers can have. And he was telling the story about Gideon, who was battling in, against the Midianites. And he had told them about the 300 that was the troops whittled down. They went and they defeated thousands and thousands and thousands of the Midianites. Well, the next day they come back, and Pastor Binkley is doing a little bit of review. And as he's doing the review, he asks if any of the kids remember the names of that nation, those enemies. One little boy raised his hand. He had the answer. Pastor Binkley called him. He says, it was the evil Mennonites. That's not, <laughs> it's not quite what, was, what Pastor Binkley taught. But there was, a, there was a time we were doing, um, we used to do Easter reenactments as well as Christmas. And um, when we did the Easter that year, we had a video showing up here that kids would, uh, and families would come in. And one of the videos was playing. It was the life of Jesus. And it was at the scene where Jesus is on trial. Pilate is trying to get Jesus released. And so Pilate offers to release a prisoner. And remember who the crowd asked for? Barabbas. They're calling out in the video, free Barabbas, free Barabbas. One little boy sitting here with his family said, Dad, they want the rabbits freed. Okay. And right at that time, they called for the, his family to be one of those in the group that goes now down the hallway. The first scene was a bizarre scene, which we had advertised that we had some animals. That poor little kid was so disappointed. He looked all over that room for the freed rabbits and never found them. They aren't the only ones that get confused sometimes when we talk about spiritual truths. It's the evening of the Last Supper. The disciples are together. Judas has already left, so it's the loyal 11. And Jesus is speaking to them. And as he speaks to them, some of them get really confused. Jesus starts talking about what's going to happen. Can you imagine if all of a sudden you were told that within hours one of your family members is going to die? That would be startling. That's what Jesus told them. As they're going on in conversation, Jesus says that one of here in the group, one of the followers, is going to betray me and you. That was confusing. That was disheartening. And then somebody that you insist, you love so much, they insist that you are going to betray them within the night. Well, the disciples were distraught. They're confused. They're, they're just absolutely broken. And then Jesus adds to the confusion. If you look at chapter 14, verse 1, and verse 26, he repeats the same phrase. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Don't be so discouraged. Don't be so distraught. That's easier said than done, Jesus. And so in the context of this story is where Jesus, in between those comments of let not your heart be troubled, he tells them how to handle confusion, how to handle distressful situations how to be able to deal with life and death when death is facing you face to face. He basically is going to summarize for us the love of God, the blessings of God. He's going to reveal to them that God has spiritual treasures, spiritual riches that you don't even realize, disciples. They are just profound. You know, it happens sometimes. 
Sometimes we don't realize the riches that are in our hands. There was a gal who passed away, her name Jean Hanked. She passed away and she left to all of her nephews and nieces, 20, 20 of them, all of her possessions, her house, everything in her attic, her money, her accounts. When they went into her house and they went through some of the things, up in the attic they found a box underneath other boxes that was filled with baseball cards. Now her dad had owned a store and uh, when he was selling candy, he collected some of the baseball cards that came with some of that candy as promotional to sell the candy. And so he had all these cards, pristine condition. And a lot of them were from the early 1900s, all these baseball cards. Well, now the nephews and nieces, they thought, wow, let's get these valued. So they took those 600-plus cards, nearly 700, and they took them to a place that valued them. And just 37 of those cards were worth $600,000. Altogether, it was almost $2 million worth of value that she never knew about, the woman who died. She didn't realize how, how rich she was, and neither did the nephews and nieces that there was this treasure in the attic. There was another guy went to Las Vegas when he was uh, between days of working. He went did what most men want to do, garage sale shopping. And so he's out there garage sale shopping. He comes to this one house, and while he's there, he's talking to the people, and the people are talking about how they, Andy Warhol used to live in this area, or their aunt did live next to him. And there's these, these frames there, and they were joking about these sketches. Maybe Andy Warhol did them, and it was obvious he didn't. But the fellow said, you know, I could use those frames. I'll give you a dollar for, all five, for each one of the five frames. He took the five frames with the pictures, sketches in them, took them home, put them in a box, and like most of us, forgot about it for two years. He's there, and he's going through some things in his garage, and he found those five different frames two years later. And he thought, you know, I have a picture that I'll use one of these frames for. So he took it in the, in the house, took it apart, and behind the sketch that was there at the front, he found that there was another sketch of Rudy Valley, the singer. And at the bottom, it's signed by Andy Warhol. When he was a teenager, he had done it. They got it appraised, $2 million. I tell you what, that's a good turn of a profit from $1 to $2 million. Never realized he had that treasure. There are believers who don't realize the treasures that God has given us out of his love, not of his grace. And that treasure that God has promised us there are several of them listed in John chapter 14. In between, let not your heart be troubled, Jesus says, don't forget this treasure. Remember, this is what I've given you. Number one, he talks about paradise or heaven. Now, we just did a whole series on heaven and what the future holds, but let me just rehearse this again. John chapter 14, where Jesus begins this conversation. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Whither I go you know, and the way you know. Thomas said, Lord, we know not whither you go, and how can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Oh, you look at this, and there's some facts that just just come glaring off the page. Heaven, paradise, it's God's home. It's a place where God invites us to return. It's a place where Jesus, after he ministered, he returned to heaven. It's the place where Jesus is right now preparing a home for us. Heaven is the place where Jesus is going to come one day and he's going to come and get us so we can go back to heaven with him. Wonderful, wonderful promise that he's making here. 
But within the confines of this passage, he makes it very clear that this is our permanent home. You see, when he says many mansions, many monets, that means a temporary place. But the word he is, uh, in, in um, our minds, we read it as a temporary place. But in reality, in the text, monet means permanent dwelling place. Not a mansion like we think big house, but a permanent dwelling place. Jesus is saying, hey, listen, disciples, I've got this covered. You have a home that is permanent. You have a place that is glorious. You have a place that, that is going to be real. You're going to be there one day. If it's, we're not so, I would have told you. And as he's expressing this, he's letting them get the sense that this life, all the battles, all the troubles, all the difficulties, they're temporary. They're going to pass. This too shall pass. But that which is permanent for us who are believers is a home in heaven. This stuff is, is going to be done, but when we're going to get to heaven, it'll be worth it all. In fact, if you go through Hebrews, you find that that's what carried Jesus through his execution, through his death. When Jesus was facing all the difficulty, it says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He put up with the ridicule. Why? Because he knew that the cross was temporary. He knew that it would pass and that he was going to be back with his Father in glory. And he says that's what you need to keep on thinking about. This treasure promise that this is going to end, you're going to be in heaven, it's clear. It's a blessing. But it's only for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's not through baptism. It's not through church. It's through believing in Jesus Christ. Summary of the idea is very simple. Jesus is saying to the disciples who were imperfect men, who were battling, who would deny him. But because they believed, he says, you are going to be in heaven one day. He said that I will not forget you. I will come for you. Even though you go up and down in your Christian life, which they were, he says, I'm going to bring you home. I remember when I was in seminary, I told you that one of the jobs I had was I was a personnel manager for a factory of 700 employees. One day, an old man came in looking for a job. He was old to me at that time. He was in his late 50s, early 60s. At that time, he was really old to me. Okay. Now he seems like a kid. But back then, he looked, this guy came in, could hardly speak English. He had just literally gotten off the boat in Philadelphia, and he was a refugee from Poland. His name was Alex. He was looking for a job. He was a sweetheart of a guy. We couldn't understand each other, but he was just, he reminded me of my dad. Same stature, appearance, things like that. And so I wanted to give him a job. I went out to the, to the foreman, told him the situation. The foreman said, he can't work here. He, if he can't read English or speak English, there's no way. But I really still wanted to give him a job, so I went to the owner of the company, and I mentioned the situation. I said, do you think I, we can create a job for him? And he was of the mindset as well. Let's do something. And so we hired him to just do cleanup, just something basic. Well, Alex was just a tremendous worker, very determined. And what he wanted to do was work as many hours as we could give him, but you can only give the janitor so many hours. But then one night when he was doing some extra jobs, he went to one of the metal lathes and he finished a job that hadn't been finished. And we found out that he was a skilled in uh, workman working with metals and fabricating things. And he was just, he was excellent at the job. So then over the next few days, we gave him some jobs, and through pictures and drawings, Alex became one of their best workers, producers. 
He would work as many hours as they would let him. He would come in early, stay late, because he had a goal. He had a wife and a daughter back in Poland. And he lived very frugally in a small apartment above a garage just down the street. Very seldom brought any kind of big lunch. Very seldom did anything other than work, save his money, work, save his money, do another part-time job with the goal of getting his wife and his daughter from Poland to here. He was their only way. They couldn't get here any other way. He was the provider. He was the one that was going to make it possible. And I found out a few years after I was there and had left, I found out from the owner of the company when we had met for some church service at some other place that Alex finally succeeded after a number of years getting his wife and daughter here. He never forgot them. He was their way. Jesus is promising in the text, I will never forget you. I am your way to heaven. And this is a promise from God. He says, paradise. But then there's another one. There's power. He says to the disciples, as you read through the text a little bit further, he says, if you had known me, verse 7, you should have known my father also, and from henceforth you know him and have seen him. Philip, Lord, show us the father, and it suffices us. Have I been so long with you, and yet have you not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the father, and how do you say, show us the father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwells in me. He does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works sake. Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you, he that believes on me, the works that I shall do, he shall do also. And greater works than these shall you do, because I go unto my Father. Interesting text. Amazing text how Jesus unfolds this. But in the setting where Philip is saying, you know, we're going to have some tough times, and if only we could talk to God, if only we could see God face to face, like they did in the Old Testament, if we had only a, a little bit, we'd be okay. And he says, no, 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 no. You've got much more. You've got much more than they did in the Old Testament, number one. Number two, Jesus is saying, hey, listen, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Jesus is getting them some information to just encourage them, to help them, to let them know that God is with you. You know how it is sometimes with kids' programs? Kids get up on stage, and all of a sudden, they freeze. And they forget. They're not sure. We were, we were at a community program the other night, and we saw this happen. The kids came out on the platform, and all of a sudden, they were doing their thing, and one little kid froze. And the poor child's looking looking, looking. And when the child finally saw mom and dad, and mom and dad gave a thumbs up, oh, it's okay. And the kid went and all of a sudden got back into the groove of things. That's what Jesus is telling the disciples. That you're not going to be deserted. You're not going to be left alone. You're not going to be without help or assistance. God's power is going to be with you. Not only his promise of heaven, but his power. Now, obviously this text is a Trinitarian passage. It's explaining that doctrine that we aren't going to take time to explore. But rather that whole idea of Jesus and the Father, he's saying, we're going to be with you. You're not going to go without. In fact, he makes the comment, he says, the things that you've experienced in the past, they're going to continue. You remember how in Luke 10, the disciples had gone out and preached and they had done the miracles the works of Jesus, and they come back and they say, whoa, the devils, they're, they're subject to us. Whoa, we preach the word of God and things happened. That's when Jesus said, that's exciting, but you should be more excited that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
point is, Jesus is leaving. What are we going to do? How are we going to do what he wants us to do? How are we going to be able to preach like we used to preach? He's not here anymore. How are we going to overcome our own problems? He's not here anymore. How are we going to get the word out to friends and relatives? He's not here to help us anymore. And Jesus is saying, not true. Not true. You're going to have the power of God still upon your life. You're going to still be able to do great works. It's true. Verily, verily, I say unto you, you're going to be able to do some of the same things and even greater Greater, I don't think, in substance, but greater in the idea of numbers. Greater in the fact that Jesus did a number of miracles, had a number of followers, but you guys, when you go out, you're going to be able to multiply it even more. You're going to see even more disciples, and it's going to grow. Why? Because God's power is still upon you. These are the promises of those hidden treasures. You've got, you got the paradise promise. You've got the power promise. You've got the prayer promise. He goes on in verse 12 and he makes this comment as you just keep on with the words of Jesus. Well, verse 13. Whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I'm going to do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. Isn't it interesting? The works, great works and prayer are right next to each other. They're tied together. No doubt that makes an obvious lesson there. But what he is promising here is prayer without limitations. He is saying in this text, he says, there's no limit of what types of things you can pray about. There's no limit. I'm not going to turn you off if you start asking about things that some don't consider important. For a child to go to prayer and pray about, pray about his bicycle, that's as important as a parent, praying about their vehicles. Praying about something, something that is difficult at school is as important as praying about something that others find difficult at work. As long as the Father is glorified, you bring your prayer requests, any of them. Not only what types of things, he says, who can get the answers? He makes it very clear in this text. You, plural. You're going to be able to get the answer. Even though you're not perfect like the disciples, I'm going to answer you. I'm going to give you those answers. And you can ask at any time. God's not going to put a closed sign up. God's not going to put it you know, out, of, out of reception zone. God is going to let you come at any time, at any moment, ask about anything, no matter who you are, age-wise, ministry-wise, career-wise, vocation-wise, your growth in your Christian life-wise. He says, this is open. And on top of it, how often you ask. I'm never going to get tired, he says, of hearing you come and say, Dad, Dad dad. Anytime. You can come as often as you want. You can come at any moment. You can come and you can ask and keep on asking. I'm not going to do a COVID thing upon you that says, oh, wait a minute, there's a panic at the stores. We got to limit toilet paper. God says, I'm not going to put limits on what you're asking. I will give you victories. I will give you guidance. I will give you what you need as long as you're asking appropriately. I'm going to do it. I'm going to answer your prayers. In fact, all we're required to do according to this text is we're required to pray. Something that some believers forget about. It's a treasure that they kept, keep hidden in their own closet. They don't do. He says, just come, ask, pray. You personally, pray to me. And when you pray, ask in Jesus' name. What's that mean? Well, it's, it's one or two or both of these ideas. It's like um, this week I was dealing with some business matters 
from one of our members who went to be with the Lord. And so being the executor, I have to take care of some of their legal matters. And so I called the law office this week and said, I have some papers and we need to deal with it. And the lady said, when you get to the office, you tell them that I sent you. And they'll, they'll communicate with me right away when you show up. So when I got to the lawyer's office, I told them, I've talked to so-and-so. She said, I should tell you that. And, oh, yes, yes, right away. They got up and immediately they got the answers. They got the things that I needed because I came in somebody else's name. That's what you're supposed to do when you pray. You don't come and say, hey, God, it's me, your, your most favorite, cutest servant. It's me who, who goes to a Baptist church, and that should gain favor. Uh-uh. Not at all. It's me because I gave money on Sunday. That doesn't gain any favor. We come because of Jesus Christ. We come before him because Jesus is our Savior who says, come in my name. And by the way, coming in the name of Jesus means this as well. It's you're going to pray the way Jesus would pray. You're going to look to the Father, you're going to ask, you're going to bring your requests that glorify the Father like Jesus would do, but you're also going to have this not my will but thine be done attitude. God, even if you say no, then you give me an answer. If you say yes, you give me direction. If you say wait, help me out, just like Jesus would pray. So he gives us this assurance, this help, these blessings that are often hidden that others don't see, but they are so profound. A promise of heaven, a promise of power, a promise of prayer, answered prayers. But there's other hidden treasures in this text. He talks about the paraclete. The, the paraclete is a word in the original language that we read about in this text. It's the word comforter, literally paraclete. Look at what he says in verse 16. He says, I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter, paraclete, that he may abide with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it sees him not, neither knows him. But you know him for he'll, he dwells with you and shall be in you. And I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Verse 26. But the paraclete, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said to you. Isn't this amazing? This promised comforter, just looking at the text real quick. Here, this is amazing. He's not seen. Some people deny him, but this person is real. He's a spirit, the spirit of truth. He is a person, not just an idea. He is a person. He may abide in you. You know him. This person is one who is God. In the original language, there are two, other, two words that can be translated other or another. One is heteros, one is halos. One of them means somebody, something totally different in the comparison. The other one means very much almost the same thing as what the comparison is. Jesus is saying, I'm going to send you a halos, one just like me, to be your comforter. Very clear, I'm sending you another part of the Trinity. I'm sending you my Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And He's going to come, and He's just like me, and He's going to be in you. Now, these guys knew. These guys were living in a period where they followed the law. They knew about the Holy Spirit. They could read stories about how the Holy Spirit at times came upon people like Saul, but then left. Came upon the prophets and the priests. Came upon the, upon the builders of the, of the tabernacle, but He would leave. 
And they're hearing Jesus say, he's going to come upon you. And they're going, whoa. In the Old Testament, he only came upon special people. But now he's coming upon us, fishermen, tax collectors, people who are struggling. He's going to come upon us. And he's not just going to be on us. He's going to be in us. We're going to become the tabernacle of God. He's going to dwell in us. And then he's going to be with us always, everywhere we go, anywhere we go, forever and ever, not come and go. This was exciting stuff. And by the way, this is the same promise to you, that you who are disciples, who are born again, he has promised you that his spirit will be with you always, forever, guiding and directing and helping you. Tremendous security. They're building the Golden Gate Bridge. And when they're building it, they're getting behind schedule within the first few weeks, first few months. Part of it is because there's fear and trepidation gripping the workers. I mean, seriously. You're suspended up there on wires and grid work that isn't real solid, that can sway. A couple men did fall to their death, and there was a long drop to the water below. So workers weren't working as fast and as diligently as they thought they should because they were fearful. It was then that the engineer in charge decided that what they need to do is make the expense and build a net that was just a few feet below where they were working so that they could be caught if they were to fall. Once the net went in place, the work productivity zoomed back to where it was and beyond, where it should have been. Why? Just for the sake of confidence. They didn't have many people fall after that because they were more confident. There was one instant where a tower collapsed and went through the net, and that was with some of the stuff, uh, the, the steel grid work as well. But outside of that, it became a security that provided greater productivity and safety. Your security is the Holy Spirit, that he will never let you fall that he is with you. In fact, look at what the text says in verse 26 of what he's doing for you, what he's available. He's comforting you. Coming, coming beside is the idea and helping you. It's the idea of teaching you all things, he says. It's the idea that he will bring into remembrance the things that you have been taught. You, you think about this. This is like what happened to one of those pilots who was on one of the raids during World War II. And they had gone in over the city and dropped the bombs, but they also received a lot of damage from the flak, the anti-aircraft. The pilot was killed. The co-pilot was injured. Some of the instruments were, were damaged. There was a fellow on the plane who had been given some training but hadn't yet become fully trained as a pilot. He got into the pilot's seat. Didn't have the right instruments, didn't know everything, and was uncertain, but they had limited radio contact. Two of the fighter planes giving escort came right beside and flew with them, giving directions, guidance, and giving all that was needed for that man to land that plane so the rest of the crew was saved. Your Holy Spirit is like those two fighter planes coming beside you, helping you, guiding you, directing you. Think it through. God is promising you a personal instructor at any moment a personal spiritual instructor. God is promising you he will keep on teaching you despite your slowness. You're not getting it. I'll probably be put in jail for saying this, but when my wife and I were raising our kids, we opted not to homeschool. 
The reason was we thought we'd be convicted of murder. <laughs> we wouldn't have the patience with the kids that is so necessary that some of you do so successfully because we would be irritated that they didn't get it. Well, the Holy Spirit sticks with us, and He isn't irritated. He doesn't quit. He doesn't you know, create spiritual murder against us when we're slow. He continues to teach us, guide us, direct us. He's the one who brings to our mind important spiritual truths. I need the Holy Spirit to do this because I can't remember the names of my kids at times. I can't remember why I left my office to come to the auditorium or what I was after at moments. None of you have any clue what I'm talking about, right? Where you have to retrace your, your steps. The Holy Spirit brings to mind. He's our spiritual memory card. The Holy Spirit knows what we need to be, dis to be encouraged. He knows when we need it. I don't know that about you. I don't even know that about some of my closest friends and family members at times. I miss it. But the Holy Spirit doesn't miss it. The Holy Spirit is the one who, He's there for you. He helps you. All we need to do is rely upon Him. He is one of those hidden treasures that is so often overlooked that some people even here this morning have not even taken time to pray. Some here this morning have not even taken time to remind themselves that the power of God is still in your life. You can win. Some of you are, have forgotten that God has promised you that he will, he will take you home. He's got a place for you. Some of you have totally forgotten about the Holy Spirit. You haven't even asked Him to fill you this morning, to guide you, to direct you this day. Some of us are like that missionary who went to a foreign field. When he got there, the older missionary that he was replacing was leaving and gave him his car and said, You'll, you, this will be helpful. Well, within just a few days of that, the car wouldn't start. So the missionary talked to a mechanic friend that he had met who was in that area, and the mechanic friend who said he knew about cars looked at it and said, I don't know, I don't know. It starts as long as you put the clutch in, get a push, and then let the clutch out. And so that's what the missionary did. The missionary had this setup that he lived right next door to an orphanage, and every morning when he needed to use the car, he would go to the orphanage and ask if he could borrow a few kids for just a few minutes. Kids would gladly come out. They'd push the car. He would let it go down the street, you know, get in, pop the clutch, and off he would go. And then wherever he was in that area, he'd park on a hill so that he would, all, even if it meant walking a little bit, park on a hill. He did this for two years. At the end of the two years, somebody's coming to replace him for a short stay. And he's telling this young man who's replacing him from America, he's telling him, hey, use the car, but here's what you're going to need to do. Well, the young man from America, he was a mechanic. And so he said, I'll look at it. He said, oh, no, no. You know, I had a mechanic look at it. It just doesn't. Well, that, that young man that had just arrived, he crawled under. He says, hey, I found the problem. Your cable to your starter is disconnected. <laughs> All he had to do was connect the cable, make it tight, and the thing started right up. Some of you are like that guy just going through life and you're saying, it doesn't work. I don't have the power. I don't have the strength. You're just not connected to the Holy Spirit the way you need to be. But God says, this is a hidden treasure I've given you. I love you so much. I've got these things available for you. They're there. And then Jesus adds to it God's promise of passion, 
his love for you. This is an amazing text. Okay? The whole idea is this. You know, in America, we make vows, we make commitments, and we've seen in our society that a lot of people, they don't follow through with their commitments. That all of a sudden, over a period of time, more and more people are giving in to making a vow for show, but not following. May I make this comment about Jesus Christ? When Jesus Christ promises you something, he follows through. When Jesus Christ said, we will love you, he's committed to you. He will continue to love you, no matter what. Peter needed that. The others needed that. And in this text, Jesus made it so clear. Watch what he says. Verse 18, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world sees me no more, but you see me because I live. You shall live also. At that day you know, shall know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He that hath my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And he that loves me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. Judas, not the Iscariot. Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him. And we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loves me not keeps not my sayings, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father. Wow. Jesus speaking to disciples. And again, this isn't Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. It's a different Judas. People who are, are going to have to keep the word. He prompts. Watch what he says about how we are committed to you. I will not leave you orphanless. Deserted. The word literally, deserted alone. The world can't see me, but you're going to see me. Because I will live again, you're going to live. I'm not going to forget you. I'm not going to forsake you. You shall know that I am in my Father, you and me, and me and you. We're going to have real close fellowship. This is a, he that loves me shall be loved of my Father. I will love him. I will manifest myself to him. If a man loves me, my Father will love him. We will come to him and make our dwelling place with him. And he says this not just to the 11, but this is for you and me. God's passion for us is unceasing. That's his promise. Do not. Do not this week say, I wonder if God cares. Oh, yes, he cares. Do not say, but, but God, did you forget about me? Oh, no. He promises you one of the hidden treasures of John 14. I will never forget about you. I have you graven on my hand, written on my heart. I'm promising you who are my disciples that I will be passionate about you. And by the way, he adds this phrase, these things have I spoken, verse 25, unto you while being yet present with you. What's he mean by that? He is making it very clear that, hey, this is a truism. And what I'm telling you, God sent me to tell you. Do you realize in Bible days, if somebody were sent with a message they sealed that, that envelope, that scroll. And the messenger, if he would open it or dabble with it before delivering it or misdelivering it, he would forfeit his life. Jesus Christ is saying, this is what God told me to tell you. God told me to tell you he's, he's going to give you his power. He's going to answer your prayers. He's going to make sure you're in paradise. He's going to love you and keep on loving you with his passion. This is my message from God. Oh, and Jesus is giving it. Jesus is totally reliable, folk. Jesus is, he's not tricking us. 
If it were not so, I would have told you. And yet, some people doubt Jesus. Reminds me of a situation where a police officer was giving evidence at a court case. He was sharing and testifying about what had happened to the person that was being convicted, being tried for, for the robbery, for the crime. Well, the lawyer of the, the one who was being accused, the lawyer was going to try to undermine the police officer, question his credibility, make him look like a buffoon so that his, his testimony was wasted. Here was the court writing. Here's the questions and answers of this conversation between the lawyer and the police officer in the witness stand. Officer, did you see my client fleeing the scene? No, sir. But I did observe a person matching the description of the offender running a block away. Officer, who provided you the description? The first officer who responded to the call to the scene. Oh, a fellow officer provided the description of the alleged offender. Do you trust your fellow officer? Yes, sir, with my life. With your life. Well, then let me ask you a question, officer. Do you have a room where you change your clothes in preparation to your daily duties? Yes, sir, we all do at the station. And do you have a locker just for your use? Yes, sir, we all have an assigned locker. And do you have a lock on your locker? Yes, sir, we, I do, and so do all the others. Hmm. Now, why is it, officer, if you trust your fellow officers with your life, that you find it necessary to lock your locker in a room you share with the other fellow officers? Quickly response, responding, it says, Oh, you see, sir, we share the building with the court's complex, and quite often it is well known that frequently lawyers walk through that room to use the same facilities. <laughs> Touche. Jesus cannot be considered unreliable. He is witnessing with the Father that these are the gifts. By the way, there's one more. There's one more hidden treasure. It's peace. He makes that comment where he says in verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives it, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Then he makes a few other comments, and you read down a little bit further, where he makes the, uh, the says in verse 30, For the prince of this world comes, and hath nothing in me. I want you just to observe these things about the peace. The peace that Jesus is promising is different than what the world promises. The world talks about peace, and it's the idea of no warfare, no conflicts, a solid economy. Everything is based on what's going on outside of us. And it says you can have peace if everybody's treating you right. You can have peace if everybody gets along. It's all external. Jesus uses a different word here. Jesus uses the word irene. It's an inner peace. It's a peace that talks about strength. It's a peace that has the idea that you are solid and stable and you're steadfast no matter what's going on around you. And in this case, he's telling them, he says, Satan's coming. Satan's going to be attacking me, but he has nothing in me. He has no power over me. Why? Because I have peace. I have peace that Satan is not going to dis disrupt me or cause me to, to veer in any way. And he says to the disciples, I'm going to give you this type of peace. I'm going to give you inner strength, stability. 
that will keep you solid and keep you doing what you need to do no matter what your circumstances. Now think this through. Think what he's talking. This is the peace that Jesus has at a time when Jesus says, one of you just betrayed me. Can you imagine how you might feel and get upset if your, one of your best friends just betrayed you? Can you imagine how you might get upset and how you would feel like quitting if you found out and you were facing your own death within hours? Jesus had great strength, great stability. Jesus had the stability that when he was tortured, when he was beaten, he had power yet. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he had such peace and control that he didn't strike out and wipe out those people that were hurting him. Jesus had such peace that while he's hanging on the cross in pain and agony, he thinks about ministering to other people. Father, forgive them. Today you'll remember, I'll remember you in paradise. What? Look at your mom. Mom, look at your son. He had the type of peace that in the middle of rejection and attack and accusations, he doesn't become vulgar. He doesn't become violent. He doesn't lie to get out of it. He remained his faithful character, compassionate, self-controlled. That Peter even points out how in his speech on the cross, he was outstanding. Can that be said about you? When you're caught in traffic? When you're frustrated by COVID? When the bills come? This is what Jesus is promising us. A hidden treasure. A treasure that gives us stability. That says you can handle anything. If you continue to follow the Lord, I'll give you peace. A peace that even doing something very difficult in the will of God might cause others to stop. I'll give you the peace that keeps you going. That's what he's promised. That's what he's given. The peace that Paul experienced that when he was beaten and he was deserted, and there he is in jail with Silas, they're able to find the light in the midst of the darkness. That they're able to sing praises to God. The type of peace that when Paul is there in the circumstances where he doesn't have monies. He writes in Philippians that he, he doesn't have funds. But he has learned to be without and at times to be full. And he goes on, he says, because through Christ I can do all things. The context of that promise of Christ enabling you to do all things is handling finances without getting upset. This is the type of peace that when Paul says, I've got a thorn in the flesh. And he goes to the Father three times and says, take it away. And God says, no. This isn't the best for you. That he is able to say that I am relying upon the Lord because his grace is sufficient. That's the peace he's promised you. That's one of those hidden blessings that he loves you so much that he says, here it is. It's for you. Any of you who are my disciples, it's for you. It's real. It's real. You, you don't have to pretend. Coach Fitzsimmons was a coach of Phoenix Suns for a number of years. I'm not sure if this was made at when he was a Phoenix coach or not, but one time as he was coaching one of the NBA teams, they were on a losing streak, doing terrible. 
And so he thought, you know, the team has given up. It's only during part of the season. I've got to get them fired up some way. You know, just got to, you know, change their thinking. So here's his pregame speech. I want you to think about one word, pretend. It's a new word for us. Pretend we're not losers today. Let's pretend instead that we're winners. Pretend we're not on a losing streak, but let's pretend we're on a winning streak. Pretend this is not just your basic basketball game in the middle of the season. Pretend this is the last game of the playoffs, and if we win tonight, pretend we get the crown. Now let's get out there. Let's pretend, and let's win. The team was all excited. They ran out. They got on the court. They got whooped. (laughs) They got beaten soundly. They come back into the locker room, and when they're sitting there dejectedly, even the coach has got his hands in his, you know, his chin in his hands, and he's just shaking his head. One of the players jumps and says, Hey, coach, let's just pretend we won. <laughs> That's what some of you are doing today. You're pretending you've got these things. Stop the pretending, it's real. You can have the real thing that really makes the difference, that really brings the victories. Take advantage of God's blessings. Take advantage of God's promises to you and watch your life change. Watch how God will continue to bless you and your family as you claim the hidden treasures that God has for you. Father, I thank you so much for your promises. Thank you for your care. And Father, thank you that we don't have to pretend that this is real. Father, thank you that Jesus spoke truth. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, you're here this morning and you would say, Preacher, this is just what I needed. I really needed this. I've been doing a lot of pretending and I want to change. And on this Father's Day, I'm going to respond to my Father. And I'm going to I'm going to make some changes. I'm going to claim some of, these, some of these hidden treasures. But pastor, I'd like you to pray for me. Wayne, please pray. Pray that I would follow through with claiming these promises and living by them. With your heads bowed, eyes closed, and nobody looking around. I'll pray for you, not by name, but I'll pray for that man, that woman, that teenager, those adults, who at this moment say, pray for me by raising your hand, putting it up, and then taking it right back down. Yes, 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 yes. Any others? Any others? Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Any others? Yes, yes, yes. Thank you, thank you. Anybody else? Thank you, sir. Thank you, thank you in the balcony. Any others? Any others? Thank you. You're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior. You're not even sure you're a disciple. I'm going to pray in a moment for these many who raised their hands. While I'm praying... Why don't you just get up and go to the right side of the auditorium where we have staff standing in those double doors that are opened on the right side of the auditorium. They'll take you and show you from the Bible what you need to do to make sure you're going to heaven. You can do that right now. The staff's headed there. Why don't you get up and go? Follow them right now to that area. Father, thank you. Thank you for your blessings, your promises. For the many who raise their hands, I pray that you would give them victory over whatever they're dealing with. Give them encouragement. Help them to claim these promises, not just in word, but in deed. Help them to utilize these hidden treasures this week 
so that they could have that type of sweet communion with you, that closeness, that confidence, that strength, that, that help to handle whatever their difficulties are. Thank you for these promises. Thank you for the simplicity of the text. Thank you for Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.